if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you take them and open them to the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay. Ecclesiastes. And if you don't know where that is, uh, you can flip and try to find Psalms, and then you're going to hit Proverbs right after Psalms, and then after Proverbs is Ecclesiastes. And then uh, if you've reached Song of Songs, that's too far. Flip back, and it'll be in between Proverbs and Song of Songs. Okay, so Ecclesiastes. And for tonight, we're starting this new study that is probably going to take us into the first few months of 2021. So it's going to take us, I think, half of this year. And I think after going through a topical series, if you weren't with us, we just finished going through the fruit of the spirit. Um, It's nice always, I think, to be back to just going through a single book of the Bible. And also, it's nice to be in the Old Testament. Uh, Aside from the Psalms, which we did last summer, and We were in Jonah like a few years ago, but I don't know the last time we were actually in the Old Testament. So uh, hopefully this is a nice change for you guys. Uh, But more than all of that, I'm actually really excited to jump into this study because I think Ecclesiastes is a really, really good book. I think it contains much needed wisdom for you guys as college students, for you guys as young people, um, for us as people living in a pandemic. And just for us as human beings, right, as people who are living in what Ecclesiastes is going to call life under the sun. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, I was on Twitter the other day, and I, I follow like a bunch of pastors on Twitter. That's why I'm on Twitter. Um, but I fo- there's this one pastor that I followed, and he, he like jokingly tweeted, uh, if books of the Bible had Amazon reviews, and he did it for like a few books of the Bible. And this is what he wrote for Ecclesiastes. Like he said, Cool vibes, but the point isn't clear. Feels like the author was kind of depressed and weirdly focused on vapor, was looking for something more upbeat, two stars. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Ecclesiastes, but maybe that's actually not too far from like your actual perception or impression of that book. Uh, or if you've never read it at all, I would say try to read it through. Read it through this week. It's 12 chapters. You can do it in one sitting. And then that might be how you feel afterwards, right? Like, why is this so so depressing? Um, I don't really get this. One of the most well-known and important statements from the book actually comes from our passage tonight, and Michael read it earlier, um, but it's Ecclesiastes 1-2. It says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And maybe you've heard that before. Um, and, like, if that statement is not depressing then it's at least like not optimistic, right? That, that doesn't sound very Christian, right? Like does that belong in scripture? And as we start out, let me say that Ecclesiastes is a, a hard book to understand, okay? There are a number of interpretive challenges and we're gonna touch on some of them tonight as we go through it, like authorship is kind of debated. Um, people have different interpretations of how do we even read this book? Uh, certain key phrases like under the sun or the word vanity or there's like different opinions on what it means. Um, There's even some like idiomatic sayings. So Ecclesiastes is written in poetry. um, And so there's just these sayings that like people don't know what they mean um, and they've just never figured it out. And so there's like, there's a bunch of, I think, interpretive challenges with Ecclesiastes, but even more than understanding what the words mean, I think Ecclesiastes is difficult and it's puzzling because you read it and it's like, wait, is that right? Right? Like, is that fit into what a Christian should say and believe? 
or how do I make sense of sometimes very unchristian sounding statements as a Christian? What do I do with this teaching? How do these truths fit into with what the rest of the Bible says? Is this even supposed to be in here? What's up with this author? And I think in many ways, um, it's supposed to be like that. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a puzzling book. It's an enigmatic book because life in this world is that way. Right? Life is puzzling and enigmatic. Um, I've heard it described this way. So I want you guys to think back to when you learned English grammar. Okay, it was maybe a long time ago for some of you guys. And if you remember that, you, you did you probably did lots of workbooks, right? Probably, maybe that was the last time you wrote with a pen and a pencil on paper. Um, but as you learned grammar, uh, you, you learned all of these rules and you learned how things are supposed to work. And, and after you've done like five pages of workbook exercises and, and it, like you've got this rule down, then you learn that for every one rule, there's like 20 exceptions, right? Especially in English. Um, like for example, I before E, except after C. And th there's like a bunch of different exceptions. Um, and that's why I, like English is weird because there's just so many exceptions. Well, that's kind of what Ecclesiastes does for us. Okay, if you have Proverbs, which is, uh, if the Proverbs give us like these rules or these norms, um, these principles or general truths about how life works. For example, Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay, that's a general principle. Uh, and then Ecclesiastes comes in, and you can say Job as well, um, and it gives us the exceptions. Right? It gives us the exceptions to the rules. And we need that. Right? As believers, we need that. Uh, we need to be reminded that you cannot boil life down to just formulas, uh, to just statements like, oh, if this happens, then this will happen. And sure, maybe for us, like it's not as formulaic as, uh, you know, something as obvious as like the prosperity gospel. You know, people say, oh, just send in your payment of $99.99, right? And like, God will bless you. Uh, but I think for us, we can do this in more subtle ways. We say things like, well, what do you think God is trying to teach you in your suffering, right? And maybe you've said that before to someone. Um, and, and I think that question can be unhelpful because it's like, oh, we understand what's happening, right? Like we've figured it out. We know the reason for why things are happening um, to this person and why they're suffering. And so I think Ecclesiastes helps us to like ask the right questions. It helps us to think through, okay, why doesn't life go the way that it's supposed to go? Ecclesiastes keeps us from being disillusioned about how much that we know and how much we grasp and understand and control life in this fallen world. Ecclesiastes shows us the extent to which the curse of sin has really messed everything up. And let me just say this, it's more than we think, okay? Uh, and yet, even with like all of life's frustrations, even with all of our unanswered questions, Ecclesiastes teaches us that we can live a life of wisdom of faith, of joy in God's world. Okay, so tonight we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Um, <clears throat> and this passage, it, it kind of serves as an introduction, as a prologue to the rest of the book. And as we keep reading in the rest of Ecclesiastes, the author is going to unpack in more detail 
what he talks about in, in this opening passage. Okay, and then at the very end, in chapter 12, he's actually going to revisit some of the things that he talks about in our passage tonight. Okay, so I know Michael read it already, but I'm going to read it again real quick. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It, is, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your word, and we know that uh, your word itself attests that every word is profitable for us. Um, even uh, kind of a neglected and a difficult portion of scripture, such as Ecclesiastes. And so I pray that as we begin our study, that you would give us insight, help us to, um, to really see life accurately as, as your word describes it. And also um, give us just perspective as believers, help us to learn wisdom um, for what you have to teach us tonight. God, we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to go through pretty much verse by verse, and you guys have the headings on the notes. Um, and yeah, the outline might not be reflective of like how long we spend on each point, but we're going to go through this. Okay, so point number one is uh, we'll answer the question, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Okay, who is the author? And uh, in verse one, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the traditional view is that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Okay, written by Solomon specifically toward the end of his life. Now, if you read through this book, you will notice that the author never actually mentions his own name. Okay, if it's written by Solomon, he actually never says Solomon. And so uh, in more recent times, some people have questioned whether Solomon actually wrote it for a few different reasons. But uh, I think the best position still is that Solomon wrote it. Okay, so we're going to stick with Solomon. And uh, if you look at the description in verse 1, right, it says, the son of David king in Jerusalem, that describes Solomon. And then if you read through like the book and how the author kind of retroact or retrospectively describes his life, it seems to fit Solomon's life. So for example, in Ecclesiastes 1, 16 and 17, the author says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Okay, he talks about having a lot of wisdom. And then in chapter two, he talks about how he all had all this stuff. Right? Things like gardens and livestock and silver and gold and concubines and all this stuff. And uh, from the Old Testament, we know this was true of Solomon's life as well. Right? He had lots of wisdom and he had lots of stuff. Um, and then just the last thing is if you look at the first verse of Proverbs, okay, Proverbs 1.1, and we know that was written by Solomon because he says so. 
And then if you compare it with the first verse of Ecclesiastes, there's a pretty apparent parallelism. Okay, so I think all of that is evidence that our argument, I think that Solomon wrote it. But, but anyway, the, the more important part, I think, isn't so much to give you proof that it's written by Solomon. But what I want you to take away is that Solomon's identity and his life, it is relevant to what's actually being said in Ecclesiastes. If you guys um, think about who Solomon was, he was one of the greatest kings in Jerusalem. He had everything, right? He owned the kingdom. Israel was prosperous under him. Um, And you read through like the meditations and the conclusions of someone who had it all, who tried everything that life had to offer. And he's going to say that this himself in Ecclesiastes. That what we, what we learn from this book are truths that Solomon in his position had special opportunities to learn and to experience. And we just read like the first 11 chapters, right? And these are the conclusions that he reaches after having lived the kind of life that he lived. If you look back at verse one, it gives us another title for the author. And it's one that he's actually going to use throughout the book. Okay. And it's, it's the title, the preacher, okay? the preacher. And in Hebrew, the word is koheleth. Okay. And it, it's not important that you actually know the word itself. Um, but a couple of things I want to point out about that word. Um, first, that, that word koheleth, it refers to uh, an assembly or a gathering of people. Okay, an assembly or a gathering of people, often uh, for the worship of God. So like a synagogue or a church. And this is actually where we get the word Ecclesiastes. So if, you know, if you're wondering, like, where does that come from? Um, the Greek equivalent kind of of koheleth is ecclesia, gathering or assembly. Um, and this is where we get Ecclesiastes. Okay, so that, that's just some trivia for you. But second thing is, how are we supposed to receive the preacher's words? And I think this uh, word koheleth helps us to answer that question. We're supposed to read this book kind of like a sermon. Okay, we're supposed to read this kind of like something that is delivered to a gathered, gathered assembly of God's people. Um, you think about what a sermon is, it's something with a text and an explanation, and an application, and that's what Ecclesiastes is like. Okay, so just as the preacher has gathered God's people together, I think he has also carefully gathered all of these meditations throughout his life. Um, if you look in chapter 12, verse 11, it says it's given to him by God, who's the one shepherd. So he's, so he's taken this all together, and he's put it together, and it's informed by his own life experience, and it's meant to be given to this assembly of people, right? God's people, kind of like a sermon. So that's the first one, or first point, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Okay, second, what does the word vanity mean? What does the word vanity mean? Uh, look at verse two. <clears throat> it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Okay, so in verse two, I think we have uh, what is the thesis of Ecclesiastes. So we just said, like, you know, in a, in a sermon, you have a text, an explanation, application. You can think of verse two as the text. Okay, this is the text that the rest of the book is going to expound and explain. And he's going to say the same thing at the end as he wraps up in chapter 12, verse 8. Uh, and this word vanity, right, uh, the Hebrew word is hevel. Uh, it comes out 38 times in Ecclesiastes. So it's a pretty important word. Now, what does it mean? And this is highly debated, um, but this is important. Okay, When we use the word vanity, uh, we use it a little bit differently. We're probably thinking about like someone who has this excessive pride, 
someone who pays excessive attention to their appearance or something like external or superficial, right? Someone who's vain. Um, or maybe you think of the idea of futility. You say like, oh, that, like, that is all in vain, right? That, why are they trying that? It's futile. Um, and that's what some translations have picked up for like, for example, the NIV, um, it translates this word Havel as meaningless. Okay. So, um, I think you read that and you get the impression, okay, life is meaningless. Life is empty. It is without purpose. And then they would say it's meaningless apart from God. Okay. And I think that that is part of the interpretation, but I think there's a problem with that. Okay. And I think, first of all, if, if that's what Havel means, meaningless, right? No purpose. Then you have to ask yourself, why does the preacher's message even matter? What, what makes what he has to say meaningful? Um, you think of like those people who argue that there is no absolute truth, right? And, and often the counter argument is like, how can you make a truth claim, right? That's a truth claim in itself. If you say that there's no absolute truth. I mean, I think we can kind of say the same thing. If everything is meaningless, then why does this matter at all? But more significantly, throughout Ecclesiastes, we do see that there are things in this life that are genuinely good and that we can enjoy. He talks about how some things are better than other things. And if so, if everything is meaningless, then I don't know that we can say that. Right? For example, in Ecclesiastes 2.24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in its toil. Um, or, or chapter 9, verses 7 to 9, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, enjoy life with a wife whom you love. Okay, does that sound meaningless to you? I think uh, a better way to understand what the preacher means by this word vanity by Havel is to imagine your breath on a cold day. Okay, think about the wind or the breeze. What is that like? Well, you would say that your breath on a cold day, it is short, right? It's fleeting. It's here, and then it's gone in the blink of an eye. And elsewhere, it's uh, Proverbs 31.30 speaks to this. It says, charm is, de- charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting. And that word is havel, right? Beauty is havel. So it's short and fleeting. What else is your breath like on a cold day? Well, it's elusive, right? It's unable to be grasped. You can't grab onto it. You can't control that vapor, you can't sit, like save it for later, put it in your pocket. You can't take that vapor from your breath and shape it and make it into something. That's life in this world. That as soon as we try and say, okay, I understand this, I got this, it eludes our grasp. And I think one more idea that's maybe wrapped up in this word vanity, and I think which maybe is the result of what we just said, is that it's frustrating, right? Life is filled with frustration and disappointment and not meeting our expectations. You can't predict what is going to happen. You can't control what is going to happen. You can't guarantee a certain outcome. And so that's frustrating. And so if life in this world really is this way, right? If that's what is wrapped up in this word Havel, then verse three, it says, this is the conclusion. It says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, I want you to read verse 3 carefully um, because I think his application, his so what, is a little bit narrower than we might first read. Okay? He's not talking about, oh, like, why do we live? Or he's not talking about, oh, why do we do anything at all? Right? He's, he's not even talking about like, our enjoyment of things or creation itself. Look at his question. He says, what does man gain? Right? What does man gain? That's what he's talking about specifically. 
And that word gain, uh, it's talking about profit. It's talking about surplus, what is left over. Um, you can think of it as what you have to show at the end of your life. Okay, so what are you hoping to get out of this life? What are you hoping to accomplish? That desire, that ambition, that hope, or that, that promise of gain, that is what the preacher is talking about specifically. What he's saying is if this is what life is like, if life is like a breath on a cold day, something that's short, something that we cannot control, then we need to reconsider how we think about gain in this life. And so let me just, I mean, ask you guys this question. How would you answer that question? Why do you do what you do? Or what are you hoping to gain? What are you working so hard for? At the end of your life, what is that monument? What is that trophy that is going to justify all of your work, all of your effort? What, is, uh, what are you hoping to gain? And as you're thinking through that, realize it doesn't have to necessarily be something like physical or something material. Maybe for you, like you, you are working hard, you are toiling so that you can accomplish something. Or maybe like you just want to feel a sense of purpose. Maybe you want to provide for a family in the future. You want to leave a legacy. You want to make your life count. And the preacher's kind of unspoken answer to this question in verse 3, what is there to gain from this life? It's nothing. Right? There's, there's no gain because life is the way that it is. You gain nothing as long as you're living here under the sun. Now, that phrase, under the sun, it's, in another, it's another important phrase in Ecclesiastes. It's going to show up 29 times in this book. <clears throat> and I think maybe the most literal way that we can understand it is uh, under the sun is like here on earth, okay, earthbound. It's perspective from, from us here on earth. And I think some people have read a little bit more meaning into it, uh, and they say that under the sun describes a life without God. They say that it's the perspective of a non-believer, um, and I think that's true to some extent. Like, I, I think it's true that, you know, obviously life has changed when God is in the picture and you know him, right? So things are different when you're a Christian. But at the same time, I think life in this world is also in many ways the same for all of us, right? Whether you're a Christian or not. And so how do we understand this phrase? Well, just a couple things. I would say that under the sun shows us that this is not all that there is. Yeah, this is not all that there is. One day life under the sun is going to end. But on this side of eternity, right, as long as we're here, life is the vanity. This is true for all of us. Life is a breath. And then the second thing, kind of what I touched on already, is that all of us live life under the sun. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're a non-Christian, we all experience how life in this world is like that breath on a cold day. It is short. It's elusive. It's uncontrollable. It's frustrating. And being a Christian, it helps you, but it doesn't exempt you from the reality of this life. In fact, one of the things that you'll notice as you read through this book is that it doesn't really talk about us in terms of like sinner or faith or salvation or Jesus or things like that. Rather, it talks about us as creatures in relation to our creator. Okay, it talks about us as human beings who live on this earth. And so as like we all experience life under the sun. And yet, even though that's true, I think we all want to ignore this. We all want to reject what the preacher says in verses two and three. And we do this in different ways. Unbelievers, they try to ignore it by believing that they can live forever. 
right? They, they try to pretend that satisfaction or meaning or gain can be found in things like money or sex or family or the next vacation. They think they can actually gain for themselves in this life. But I think we as believers, we try to ignore it too, right? We distract ourselves from the frustrating and the hard parts of life. We believe that somehow knowing the right thing or believing the right thing or avoiding like the bad things or being wise or being godly enough is the key to mastering life. And we, we try to pretend as if like verses two and three don't apply to us. And the preacher says, you can't do that. And in verses four to 11, the rest of our passage, he's going to expand on his answer to this question in verse three. Okay, these are reasons why there is nothing to be gained from life under the sun. First reason is this, that life under the sun is unbreakably repetitive. Life under the sun is unbreakably repetitive. Look at verse four. So as a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. So as you're reading that, um, do you feel kind of like the back and forth rhythm as, as, uh, from the preacher, right? A generation comes, a generation goes, um, the sun rises, the sun goes down, the wind blows south and comes around to the north. And that's what life is like, right? Around and around it goes, it reaches one place, and then it just starts all over again. And I think for, for all of us, like we can think of parts of life where this is true, right? Like for you guys as college students, you study hard for your exams, like you cram like crazy, you pull all-nighters and then you take it and you're done and you walk out of that classroom and then you realize, oh shoot, I got finals in like a couple of weeks, right? And it just starts right over. Or maybe for, for some of you who live in the apartments, like someone in your apartment finally decided to do the dishes, right? After weeks and weeks of them piling up in your sink and, and it's all clean, your kitchen's all tidy. You know what? You're gonna have to do your dishes again, right? Because you're gonna cook and you're gonna use your dishes. Uh, no one ever does their laundry just once. I hope not, at least. Or you look forward to the weekend, right? And you're so happy it's Saturday and then Sunday and then Monday morning is here. Right? You start right over again. Or even in ministry, like for me, I can put hours into preparing a sermon and then I, I, I give it and, you know, I hope it, it lands well, but then right after that, it's on to the next one, right? And, and we all ex- understand this. We experience this every single day. And even though this is this undeniable part of life, we want to reject it, don't we? Because for us, we think that all repetitiveness is unsatisfying. It is so boring. And so we say things like, oh, I don't want to just work this nine to five job. I don't want to just follow the path that everyone else, uh, everyone else takes. I want to do something different. Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Screwtape, Later, Screwtape Letters. And in that book, uh, Screwtape, he is... Uh, he calls him the senior devil, and he's writing to Wormwood, who is kind of his apprentice or his protege, and he's giving Wormwood advice on how to get Christians to stumble, right? How to like get them to turn away from God. And he talks about he talks about this, and he calls it the horror of the same old thing, the horror of the same old thing. This is what he says: the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart, an endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. And these verses that we just read, they, they grate against our longing to break life's repetitive cycle. And the preacher says we can't. 
right? What makes us think that we are different from the generations of people who came before us? What makes us think that we're different than the course of the sun and the wind and nature? Um, one commentator put it like this. He says, the massive reality of creation thus critiques the aspirations of all those tiny mortal beings who stand within creation as transient creatures. There is no reason to assume that individuals should gain from their toil when creation as a whole does not. Okay, so life is unbreakably repetitive. And if that's not depressing enough, um, there's more. So next point, life under the sun is frustratingly unfulfilling. Life under the sun is frustratingly unfulfilling. Verse 7. It says, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. So the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So in verses 7 and 8, I think we still see that kind of like rhythm of life, right, that we can't break out of. Um, living under the sun, but there's another aspect here in these verses, right? And it's that things are unfulfilling. They never uh, kind of reach their end. It says the streams, they run to the sea, um, but they're never going to finish their job, right? They're never going to be able to say, okay, like we filled up the sea. It has enough water. Um, It just keeps going on and on. And then in verse eight, the, sorry, the verse eight, the preacher switches from nature and five to seven to our human experience. Bree's staring at me right now. (laughs) The things that we say and hear match the course of everything else, right? This is true of our lives as well. There's, it's frustratingly unsatisfying, can never be finished. Um, And look what it leads to, right? It leads to this weariness, like the preacher says. He says, you work to get things done, but there's always more to do. And, And you can pour your whole life into something and you have no guarantee how it's going to turn out. Uh, for some of you, this happened like literally a couple months ago, right? You worked so hard to get an internship, to get a job offer or whatever it might be uh, for this past summer. And then COVID happened, right? And like, you can't guarantee what's going to happen even at the end of all of your work. Why does all the work on one side of the equation sometimes so incongruent with the results on the other side? right? The streams flowing, like constantly doing all this work to to dump water into the sea. And yet, like, it's never going to be done. And later in the book, the preacher is going to ask these same kinds of questions. He says, why does wisdom and why does folly lead to the same end? Why does someone work so hard only to leave it for the next guy? And so again, like, do you feel that question that the preacher is asking in verse three? He says, what does man gain by all of the toil I wish he toils under the sun. All right, next point here. Life under the sun is quickly fleeting. Life under the sun is quickly fleeting. Verse nine. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So I think verses 9 and 10, they give us us one way that we try to escape this unbreakable rhythm of life. And that way is that we try to seek novelty. We try to find something new. Um, And I think that's true, especially for our generation. 
right? Like we just, we're always looking for that new and exciting thing. We're always waiting for that next uh, fill in the blank, right? That next season of life, that next vacation, um, that next relationship, whatever it might be. This is what we do, right? We seek novelty. And the preacher's reality check for us is he says, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, he's not saying that there aren't new innovations, that there's not new technology, that there's not new ways of doing things. I mean, certainly we have things that the preacher didn't have, right? Even this year, there are like so many things that are new. I mean, did anyone even know that Zoom existed before 2020? I didn't. And not just things, right? We're like new experiences, new events. But look at, what, look at verse 10 again. Look what he says. He says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. So his point is that that new technology is still technology and new forms of communication are still communication. And this unprecedented pandemic is still a pandemic um, and so on and so forth, right? Even a newborn baby is still a baby and that's nothing new. And then in verse 11, um, the preacher, he, t- he touches on one more way that I, I think we try to gain from this life. Um, so maybe some of us, like we're, we're smart enough or wise enough to understand that, you know, we only get so many years in this life, that we don't bring anything with us when we die, uh, whatever it might be. And so, so we have the mentality, okay, like I'm going to try to do something that outlives me. Right? My, the purpose of my life is I'm going to leave a legacy or I'm going to work so hard to make sure I provide for my kids or for my family who comes after me. And then look at what the preacher has to say. He says, you can't seek after permanence in this life. He says, the honest truth is that sooner or later, things will be forgotten. Right? Even something as significant as your life, even something as significant as who you were and what you did, sooner or later, that's going to be forgotten. If you look back at verse four, um, I think the order there is important. It's easy to miss this, but he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, right? Rather than the other way around. He doesn't say a generation comes and a generation goes. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes. And I think that's intentional. There's this sense of replacement, right? Once you pass away, just the next people are going to come and they're going to take your place and then they'll go and then the next people will come. Right? And pretty soon, there's not going to be any remembrance. And I think we learned this in James, didn't we? James 4, uh, 14, it says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so the, the, only, the only permanence in this life under the sun, uh, the preacher says, is this unbreakable and, and this often frustrating repetition. This frustrating um, constraints of life under the sun. And so all of this is, if all of this is true, right, if this is what characterizes, characterizes life in this world, um, then let me ask you, like, what do you think about that? You know, how are you feeling about that? Do you accept that reality? Do you embrace that? I mean, if all of that were true, how would you do things differently if you lived with those limitations of life? How would that change the things that are important to you? Or in what ways do you try to ignore or reject or escape the truths of this passage? Um, like we said earlier, is it in the pursuit of novelty? And you think to yourself, well, I just need to do something new. I just need to do something exciting. And we just need a new and a better solution. 
or I can't wait until the next, you know, whatever it is, the next destination or the next version of the iPhone, or the next season, the next stage of life, the next relationship. Or you think, oh, I just need to travel. I just need to get away. I need some new like surroundings and environment. Is it that sense of novelty? Or what about this? Is it in that pride of accomplishment? Right, maybe like more fundamental than having something material to show for you know, the, all of the work that you put in to, to show for your life. Um, like you don't care so much about having a stable job or a paycheck or like a nice house or, you know, like a picture perfect family, whatever it might be like even more fundamental. You just live for that feeling of accomplishment, right? You want to be able to say like, look at what I did. You want to be able to at the end of your life, finally rest and look back at what you've done and feel justified. Is that how you try to escape the reality of life under the sun? Is it in just distracting yourself from the hard parts of life, right? You're constantly looking for the next fun thing. You're, you're like uh, just numbing yourself with entertainment and with pleasure. And like you just, you don't make yourself uh, face the hard parts of life. And again, those things aren't bad, okay? Let's be clear. Those things are not bad, but we have to go back to that question in verse three. Are these ways that you try to manipulate life in this world? That you try to control and master life in this world under the sun as if it's possible to gain. And you think, oh yeah, sure. Life doesn't always go the way that you want it to, but there are ways that like, you feel like you can somehow overcome that. And the preacher says, no, you can't. You can't. You're not the first one who has tried. And so the first step to living wisely, that, that's his goal here in Ecclesiastes, okay? To teach us how to live wisely. The first step to that is to acknowledge this, to acknowledge this reality, to come to grips with what life in a world cursed by sin is like and to stop pretending otherwise. Now, if I, I were to end right here, I, I think it would feel a lot like an incomplete sermon, right? And maybe you're thinking like, man, quarantine has really gotten to you, Francis. Like, what's up with you? Um, and of course, as, as Christians, we have more information than this, right? Like, yeah, we, there's a lot more that we can say. There's, the rest of the Bible helps us to think about this. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, right? That word vain, um, and your faith is in vain. Uh, but we know as Christians, life under the sun isn't all that there is, right? We know that there is resurrection. And so Paul says in that same passage, you know, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Okay, so we, we have like information to, to complement this with. We know that Jesus Christ does give us purpose and enjoyment and value to our work. We know that in him, we find something new, new life, right? A new covenant. But, but realize like even in Ecclesiastes, we're going we're gonna to work our way there, okay? That's coming in chapter 12. That's coming in the end. But we're not there yet. And he wants to make us a little bit uncomfortable first. And I think for tonight, like I'm okay with just lingering in this a little bit because um, like we said, as Christians, we're not exempt from this. Okay, let's not jump ahead too quickly. Um, and so while we're here, how do we apply this passage as Christians? Um, well, let me just give you three quick thoughts as we close. Okay, how do we think about this as believers? Um, the first one I'll call being human, being human. There is lots of things, I think, that sometimes reveal deeper heart idols, right? And they expose what we really value as important. 
Um, but there's also loss of that which is genuinely good. Or you think of like losing a loved one and those feelings of loss are, I think, good and appropriate feelings. Um, you look in scripture, it shows us that, are, that there is space in the Christian life for experiencing frustration and grief and for even lamenting to God. One author puts it like this. He says, what God created and purposed was legitimate and original good. Okay, he's talking about um, the Garden of Eden. But to lose this good is pain. There are things worth crying about. To learn such tears for the Eden that once was is to learn how to cry like the wise we are meant to become. See that? This is a good like frustration. This is a good lament. Because what we're reminded is like things are not what they should be. The way that Paul puts it in Romans 8.22 is that all of creation is groaning to be set free from its current futility. Current futility. And so the truth of Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11, points us back to what God made originally good. It, it reminds us that we were made for Eden rather than made for life under the sun. And I think especially in Ecclesiastes, this is highlighted as our common human experience, right? We talked about that earlier. This is true of all of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. And even as Christians, we must not pretend like we don't experience these same frustrations and we must not pretend like we have all of the answers. And so I think just one application of this is this changes how we walk with other people, right? We enter into suffering patiently and graciously and humbly. Uh, we, we enter in like trying to listen and to understand before we speak. We avoid quick fixes and we avoid giving trite answers. And yeah, for sure, as Christians, you know, we have some answers to give to people's questions. And I would say we have the most important answers to the most important questions. But we don't have all of the answers. And so don't pretend like you do. Right? Like you know how life works. We need to learn to relate to others as we seek to share the gospel with them. Okay, so that's the first point, being human. Um, second, remembering death. Remembering death. One of the lessons that comes up in Ecclesiastes is just how valuable the reality of death is in teaching us how to live wisely in this world. Um, Later in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And the reason is, he says, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. And so if you go through our passage again, verses 1 to 11, I want you to realize and just see how death is so often at the root and the cause of this reality of life, right? Death is what keeps us from achieving the things that we want to do. Death is what brings an end to the best parts of this life. Death is a reason why everyone will eventually be forgotten. Um, Death is a reminder that we are not the center of the universe, right? That nature is more powerful than us. The world keeps spinning even after we die. The sun will still rise. The next person will come and go. Uh, One author put it this way. He said, death is the pin that bursts every bubble that we might use to shield ourselves from the truth. And for us as Christians, we know, like we know what's going to happen to us when we die, right? But, But still, death is that clock on our lives here on earth. And so the preacher is going to teach us that in order to live wisely in this world, that you need to have a right perspective on death. You know, what if instead of trying to like cram all of these things into our lives before some like unknown future or so we think, what if we worked backwards? 
what if we, we acknowledge death as this reality, then what should I rightly expect from this life? You know, then what should I do with my limited time here? I think we need to pray like the psalmist did in Psalm 90 to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then last point is this, um, life as gift, not gain. Life as gift, not gain. And so if, if life really is this way, right, if work is frustrating, is if I can't guarantee the results of all my efforts, if I won't even be remembered, then what does it mean to live life in this world? And I think at least for this opening passage, um, what the preacher does is he disorients us and then he reorients us. Okay, you have to understand the vanity of this life. Uh, more specifically, you have to understand the vanity of placing your hope of gaining something from this life under the sun. You have to get that first before you learn to live wisely and joyfully. David Gibson, he puts it like this. He says, far from being something that makes life in the present completely pointless, future death is a light God shines on the present to change it. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life. By relativizing all that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. This is the main message of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Life in God's world is a gift, not gain. So as we go through this book, he's going to look at, the preacher is going to look at a bunch of different things, like a bunch of ways that we try to manipulate life, that we try to overcome its constraints and its frustrations, right? Things like, oh, if I work hard enough, then I'll be set. Or if I seek pleasure, then life will be satisfying. If I have enough wisdom and knowledge, then I'll know how to navigate through the hard parts of life. And the preacher says, no, these are not just means to an end. These things are God's gifts to you in and of themselves. And so like, think about that. Instead of thinking of work as this like necessary evil to what comes afterward, in this sin-cursed world, you can actually enjoy your work because its value doesn't need to be tied up with its results. It doesn't need to be tied up with what comes at the end. Work itself is a gift from God, not a way to gain. Right? And you can say that about a bunch of different things, right? The gifts that we enjoy. And that's the first step that we learn from this passage, just the first step to living wisely in this world. Um, and that's what's to come in the rest of this book. Okay, so I'm excited to go through this. Um, hopefully, you guys are, hopefully you guys are as well. Um, let's pray together. God, we thank you um, just for truths that we need to hear, uh, truths that kind of wake us up, grab us by the shoulders and, and show us uh, yeah, just how to make sense of our world. Um, Lord, we know that uh, in Jesus Christ, we do have an answer to the vanity of life, um, that there is meaning and purpose that we can find in him, um, that we can genuinely enjoy the gifts that you've given to us. And so God, along with the wisdom that we find here in this book, help us to, to live life in this way, to see everything as gift from you rather than trying to gain, trying to get somewhere else. Um, help us to receive what you've given to us humbly and with gratitude. Bless our small group time. I pray for just fruitful discussions. Um, we thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.